You're listening to the IC Interviews. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Roddy Snell of Bailey Gifford's Emerging Markets team. Roddy is co-manager of the Bailey Gifford China Fund, Pacific Fund and Emerging Markets Leading Companies Fund. He's also co-manager of the new China Growth Trust after Bailey Gifford took over the management of the trust from Witan in September. And he is deputy manager of Pacific Horizon Investment Trust. Roddy, thank you so much for joining me. Now, I'm looking at your fund performance and both the China funds and the Asia funds are up over 50% in the last year. Pacific Horizon's up startling um, over 100%. Clearly, the pandemic has turbocharged a number of newer economy tech-led companies and left others struggling. Can you talk a bit about what's happened in Asian markets this year and why your portfolios have done so well and if you think this is sustainable? Sure. Well, thank you much for, for, for having me, Mary. And uh, you know, certainly the, the, the year's been very good for the funds. And I, I suppose more importantly for us is that also, you know, the three, five and, and 10 year numbers are also uh, very good, which, which is what we, we tend to look at. Um, but this year has been very good. Um, I suppose uh, as our sort of process and philosophy, we've got a very strong focus on growth. Uh, and that's been a big benefit um, over the past over the past seven or eight months. Um, and I think COVID has probably, probably done two things that have been very important for our, for our portfolios uh, in Asia. Um, firstly, it's brought forward a lot of demand. So you've seen a lot of companies like, say, Meituan, the online food delivery business um, that, that, that we own, uh, seen a surge in users. Um, online, their online grocery business, for example, saw 400% growth uh, over a three-month period. And what that's done is it's massively condensed the time it takes for these companies to scale up and reach dominance. So what would have taken 10 years has happened in perhaps one or two years. And that means that there's going to be less competition in the space. There's less time for competition to come about and returns are going to accrue to a fewer or smaller number of players. So I think the strong have got, got stronger, which is very beneficial. And secondly, perhaps more importantly, is it's... it's, it's um, it's rapidly increased tech adoption across the less tech savvy parts of, of Asia, uh, like sort of ASEAN, Indonesia. Um, so just as I say, SARS catalyzed um, e-commerce in China and gave birth to the likes of Alibaba and Jada.com. You've seen that happen due to COVID across parts of um, Asia, like Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam. And that's been very beneficial to a number of our holdings like C, uh, the dominant e-commerce company across the region. Yes, um, C is an amazing story. Can you t- tell us a bit more about them? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, we've owned C for for a couple of years, a uh, couple of years, years, uh, years now in the various funds. Um, so this started life as a gaming business. Um, Forrest Lee, the the founder uh, and chairman, is an avid gamer, uh, and his big break was managing to persuade Tencent, the uh, the Chinese uh, gaming behemoth, um, to allow him to publish all their games uh, across uh, ASEAN. Um, and they've also started producing their own games uh, and had a big hit with one called Free Fire, uh, which has become one of the world's most largely downloaded games, um, uh, not just across sort of Asia, but actually into emerging markets like South America uh, and India, uh, which has been very unusual um, thus far in, in the gaming space. Um, and then a few years later, sort of 2015, 2016, after setting up their gaming business, they decided to do something quite unusual, which they set up an e-commerce business um, predominantly focused on ASEAN, uh, with uh, Indonesia being the most important part of that business. And they've just done incredibly well there. Um, they've done something I don't think anyone else has done, which has been able to um, come in as a third player late to the party and outcompete much better, uh, more or more much more financially secure businesses like Alibaba backed and SoftBank backed enterprises, and they've become the number one player. 
and there's just a huge growth opportunity now. You know, ASEAN is a hundred billion dollar internet economy. It probably goes to three, four hundred billion over the next five or six years. It's sort of ten years behind China, uh, and I think C is going to be the dominant player. It's got a forty percent market share. Probably goes to sixty, seventy percent, uh, and can grow considerably. Um, and finally, it's got a fintech business, which I think is worth probably many billions uh, that currently has zero valuation in the market. Um, so it's our largest, uh, our largest holding in our various Asian funds. Uh, and I think it's probably the most most attractive company uh, across all of ASEAN, certainly. Yeah, I was reading your annual report and you've had to keep selling chunks just to keep it in compliance with your boundaries of how much um, of how much of one stock you can hold in a portfolio, which leads me. To the question of valuations, which people talk about in the tech sector a lot, and I, the age of valuations are generally lower than in the US. But is valuation something you look at when investing, or is there any? If you saw a good company, would you ever not invest in it based on price? Um, no, I think valuation is a, is a is a core part of the of the investment process. Um, and for us, the key metric is that we want to be able to at least double our money over any five year time horizon. Um, so we look at a number of factors when we're analysing companies, but putting those all together, we've got to be able to double our money for our clients. So obviously valuation um, is important. Um, we review our, 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 our holdings on a regular basis, uh, at least formally every 18 months. And we have been trimming uh, a number of those companies that have done very, very well. Um, you know, that said, you know, I look at our, our, our holdings you know, to take, take the information technology sector I think still actually look very reasonable in places. Um, you know, two of our largest holdings, uh, Alibaba and Tencent. Uh, these are companies that are growing, you know, 20, 30 percent per annum still. Um, if I back out uh, and just look at their core businesses, um, you know, I think they're trading on about 15, 20 times PE multiples, which just looks incredibly good values for that sort of growth. You know, it's I'd say it's 50 to 75 percent cheaper than what you'd be paying for a, a sort of US peer. Um, so no, I think um, I think valuations still look pretty attractive uh, across large parts of uh, large parts of of, of, of Asia, uh, and I just it's not just the tech sector at the moment. You know, I've I've rarely been so bullish on Asia. I, I think the the competition for capital in our portfolio has never been stronger. Uh, there are just lots and lots of ideas at the moment, um, especially I'd say in China and across the A share market, the local A share market in the country. Yeah, China is obviously a big focus for you with um, half of your your Asia funds in China and, and you manage those two China trusts. I think geopolitics is a concern and the trade tensions between um, the US and China have sort of been turning into talks of a tech war. Um, how exposed are you to if tensions soured here? I'll perhaps answer that by saying that actually I think, first I think tensions between the two countries continue to increase over the next five or ten years um you know, i think firstly it works politically in the u.s to do that and secondly um i think it's the natural reaction of a of a superpower to try and suppress the rise of a, a rising superpower especially where, where ideologies clash but i would say that i think china is actually the ultimate winner here you know i think the u.s is probably making a mistake uh, you know napoleon said you know china's a sleeping giant let her sleep for when she wakes she will shake the world uh, and i think the u.s have have woken the sleeping giant uh, and what we see at the moment is China really doubling down on, on everything it can to make sure it succeeds from R&D and innovation, etc. Um, and that's throwing up a lot of opportunities, actually, uh, actually in the country. So in the long run, actually, I think for, for, a, um, for, a, for a stock picker, this is actually quite, a, quite an exciting 
um, opportunity. Uh, and as I say, probably probably makes China a more competitive uh, economy over the next decade ha- had they just been left alone. Um, we're speaking on Thursday, the 5th of November, and we still don't have a clear election result um, talking in the morning. But by the time this podcast is published, we will know the results. Do you think a Biden or Trump victory makes much difference to relations between China and the US? I think that's a that's a tricky one to answer. I think in the long run, it's very hard to predict the impact of the US elections per se. Um, I, I probably go back to my previous comment that I think whoever's in power, it's clear that the direction of policy towards China uh, will be increased tensions. Um, as I say, I think that works politically and it's just the natural reaction of of, of the US against a, a, a rising superpower. Um, I suppose what I'd you know, perhaps highlight again is that Despite what you might hear in the press, I don't think China's actually suffered much yet due to due to the actions of the US. You know, remember exports, for example, aren't actually that key to Chinese growth. Um, and so far, you know, the concerted political and economic offences by the US against China has really been more a series of opportunistic raids designed to sting and irritate. But none of them have really caused significant issues to the Chinese economy. Um, you look at tariffs. Well, actually, China's increased its share of global exports uh, over the past 12, 18 months. Um, you know, banning TikTok uh, uh, and, and WeChat from the US market doesn't really impact these businesses, especially when you compare that to the, the US $500 in billion of revenues that US companies generate in China. Uh, and even Huawei, under the so-called tech wars that came under a lot of pressure, but is actually doing fine and, and, is, and, is, and is back to back to business, if you like. Um, so as I, say, I think the opportunity is more for us to look for businesses that benefit from these tensions, especially as China looks to Looks to uh, looks to source its own its own tech uh, and its own uh, indigenous um, forms of forms of businesses. Uh, so, for example, we own a company called Kingdi, which is a software manufacturer. You know, China's trying desperately to stop using US software, uh, and that's been a big beneficiary of that. Yeah, that's true. They've certainly got um, an enormous market of their own. It's possibly a more technical question, but there's a bill um, that was recently passed by the Senate in the US, which requires. Chinese companies listed in the US should comply with American accounting standards or risk being kicked off exchanges. A number of large companies in your funds, such as Alibaba and JD.com, are owned via American depository receipts. Is this something that concerns you? Is there a chance that these companies could be could have their their American listing removed? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a strange move by the US um, because I don't think it's a, a huge issue for these Chinese businesses. Um, and I say that because they can very easily set up a dual listing structure in other countries, um, in particular Hong Kong. Uh, and we've already seen Alibaba uh, and JD.com, uh, which we both, uh, which, which we own the funds, uh, do that. Uh, other companies have done that as well, uh, NetEase, uh, for instance. Um, and they've had very little difficulty in raising large amounts of money with those secondary listings uh, in Hong Kong. Um, so I, I think the US in some ways is sort of shooting itself in in the foot here. It's going to risk having some very large world-class companies uh, simply um, simply cease to list in the country in the long run and probably move back towards China. And China will open them, uh, will, will welcome them back with, with, with open arms. Um, so no, I, I don't think it's a, a significant issue here, um, as long as things don't move too quickly. Uh, as long as these companies can get those secondary listings in, in place that you know, Alibaba and JD, JD, JD.com have done with with very little trouble. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned Alibaba. A big story this week has been the pulling of Ant's Financials IPO just a couple of days before it was due to be the largest listing ever. 
Um, what does this say about the business environment in China? And given Alibaba still owns a third of Ant Group and Alibaba is a very big holding for you, does this raise concerns um, for Alibaba itself? You know, it's, um, it was certainly a surprise. I mean, this would have been a, a $300 billion uh, plus listing, as you say, the largest, uh, the largest, um, the largest globally. Um, I suppose there's still a lot of rumour and speculation uh, about what happened. I mean, what we can say is that Jack Ma um, and other senior management uh, were taken uh, to see the regulator um, very recently. Uh, and after that meeting, uh, the exchange declared the the, um, the company could not list due to regulatory changes uh, that would impact the business. Now, it's harder to then speculate exactly why this happened, because um, you'd have thought this would have come from very, very senior positions in China that the, that the listing would have to be pulled. Um, the rumours for what they are is that Jack Ma uh, sort of fell foul of the um, of um, of of of. of very uh, senior interest in the country. Um, in particular, a couple of weeks ago, he attended a um, a uh, large conference uh, in finance. Now, in that, one of the most senior sort of godfathers of, of regulation of the banking system um, in China opened up the conference talking about how regulation was important uh, and banks, etc., needed to be regulated very well. Um, Jack Marlin stood up later at the very same conference uh, and essentially said the complete opposite. Um, and uh, the suggestion is that this did not go down well um, with senior members of the regulatory bodies in China or, or, or senior politicians. Um, so in China, look, you have to ultimately, when you're running a business, ultimately have to have to adhere to, to what the state wants. Uh, and no man is bigger than the state. Uh, and Jack possibly fell foul of this. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why the why the IPO has been postponed. Um, we think it's likely to come back in the next two to three months, uh, but we'll have to wait and wait and see. OK, that's interesting. That answers my next that answers my next question. A criticism has been sort of the reckless expansion of credit, perhaps. Is this is this something that you're worried about more broadly in, in China? Um, no, I mean, l- lots of people have been concerned for a long time in China uh, about the expansion of credit and how this would lead to a, a, a hard lend- landing in the and the explosion of the Chinese economy. Um, I, I I don't think that will happen. Um, you know, China's level of debt for actually the size of the economy um, is not particularly uh, concerning, uh, especially areas such as shadow banking. It's several times smaller than the likes of, uh, say, what we have in the US uh, or, or in the UK in terms of a percentage of GDP. However, that debt has built up very quickly in the system, and that is therefore somewhat of a concern, uh, and there will likely be some issues with that going forward. But let's not forget the enormous tools the Chinese government has on its disposal. You know, firstly, the Chinese government has very little debt. You know, when we went into the financial crisis, the government you know, ended up just printing trillions um, you know, across the world and of, of, of dollars to solve this problem. Uh, you know, China hasn't done any of this. You know, government debt to GDP is one of the lowest in the world, you know, 20, 30 percent. So they have a huge amount of, of firepower and, uh, and monetary tools at their policy should they need to do anything. Plus, they control the banking system and essentially the SOEs, the state companies that those have been lent to. So I don't see any sudden, any shock event in China that's going to cause a significant problem. 
And plus, they've actually been deleveraging very well. You know, if we go back to 2015, 2016, the government clamped down a lot on the shadow banking sector um, and those loans came off significantly. Um, and I think that's actually meant the quality of the growth that we're seeing across China has been probably the best that we've seen um, in the past sort of decade, uh, in fact. Looking at the companies themselves, there's quite a lot of scepticism about um, numbers that come out of China. Often we've seen that over coronavirus this year. But at a company level, how happy are you with the quality of reporting standards for the companies that you invest in? How easy is it to discern and do your due diligence? Yeah, I mean, uh... I actually think it's 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 pretty reasonable. Um, you've got to remember we've been doing this a, a very long time. Uh, you know, and our emerging markets team has been investing uh, since 1994. You know, our Asian funds been around since 1989. So there's at least three decades worth of experience uh, uh, of, of of investing in companies uh, across uh, across the region. Um, and in terms of the quality of the information, yeah, I think it's been it's been improving you know, considerably um, um, over time. Um, and it really comes down to just very good stock research. Um, and we've got a well-resourced team, you know, eight investors in the emerging markets team, about 60 or 70 global investors looking at um, Asian companies throughout the year. Uh, and we've also built up a, a Shanghai team, uh, which is the first time we've ever built a, an office, you know, research office outside of um, Edinburgh in the past you know, 110 years of Bailey Gifford. Uh, and that sort of certainly gives us a, a helpful on the ground um, presence um, in the region. Uh, and I suppose I'd look, I think things have changed a lot in the past 10 years as you've had increased institutionalized and foreign investors going to these countries, especially China. And the quality of the companies has changed an awful lot. And if you go about 10, 20 years, your typical company in, in EM was a, a monopoly business um, that extracted rents from, uh, from, 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 from people, be it a you know, commodity business with government ties or a, you know, a, a power supplier uh, with a monopoly position supplying um, supplying. You know, power to a city, etc. In the past ten years, things have changed completely. We've got you know completely new businesses that are world class, you know, really driven by you know, technology and the internet, uh, and these have completely new management teams uh, you know, with totally different viewpoints, uh, and the way they are governed and managed it is very different to your typical old EM business. And um, on sort of looking at improvements in China, how prevalent do you think business corruption is now? And and is this something that's still seen among uh, regulators? I think, I think you know, corporate governments more broadly is a you know very important you know aspect of 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 investing, especially when you're doing it on a five to ten year time horizon, um, like we are doing. Um, so you know how how companies have a competitive advantage um, is a key area we look at. Um, and certainly if there's any sense that it, that, it's, that it is garnered through untoward means, um, then we will not invest in those type of businesses. Um, and we have a lot of tools at our disposal to try and try and look at that. Um, you know, Bailey Gifford, we've got a very independent ESG team of more than 25 um, um, specialists. Um, in places like China, we've also been cultivating um, information sources for decades. For example, we've got a company called um, Fathom, uh, which is made up of ex-journalists, and they go around doing due diligence work uh, for us, particularly on the A-share market. Uh, and there have been times when they've come back to us and said, look, you shouldn't invest in this company. There's a red flag. Um, you know, they, they, they have made you know, a, a, series of, a series of errors here or there. Um, so, yes, look, um, you know, corruption, yeah, I think it's, it's endemic globally. Um, it does happen in the emerging markets. Uh, and it's something that we are very vig- vigilant at um, uh, you know, picking up and, and avoiding. Yeah, so you um you recently opened a Shanghai office, um, but you're uh, based in Edinburgh. How do you how do you find these companies and 
and do all your research from the other side of the world? Sure, you know, it's a, it's a good question. And look, uh, uh, the answer is that we, we spent sort of decades cultivating you know, different sources of, of information. So um, let me give you an example. For example, uh, a stock we're in that I mentioned earlier was Kingdi, uh, built in software as a service, uh, as a, a software business. Now, how did that idea come to us? Well, look, that came from actually outside of our team. You know, Bailey Gifford is very well resourced. Um, you know, the majority of our investors are all based in Edinburgh on one floor. And as I say, about 70 of those investors you know, look at Asia throughout the year. And plus, we've got that Shanghai office. Um, so this idea came from us from our global discovery team who said that we'd be looking at you know, SaaS. Um, you really should try and find something in Asia. So when we went out to China, we then spoke to a number of uh, our holdings out there in the tech space, such as uh, Tencent and JJ.com. Um, about software as a service. And they said, look, you should really speak to this company called Kingdi. Um, we know them well uh, and we think they're very good. So then we went and met Kingdi uh, in Shenzhen. Thought it was very interesting. Discussed it back in Edinburgh with our emerging markets team. And there are a few areas we wanted to look at further. So you know, we posted along you know, a few meters down to our US colleagues um, who've been looking at SaaS for many years and are sort of experts in the area uh, to get their views. And they set up some meetings for us with some US um, companies. Uh, we also use Fathom, that company I mentioned of ex-journalists, uh, who looked at the corporate governance side of the business uh, and also at some of the politics. A big driver here is China trying to increase uh, its software use of indigenous firms, trying to get a sense of how politically um, motivated they really were to, to, to push that, 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 that indigenization of software. Uh, and finally, look at university, uh, Bailey Gifford, we've also been getting lots of tie-ups with universities, uh, about 25 academic institutions. Uh, one of those is Tsinghua uh, in um, in China, which is sort of uh, one of the leading uh, universities um, uh, in the country. Uh, we got their views from some of their from some of their um, experts in the um, in the in the computer side on on their thoughts on on, on software as a service and Kingdi's offerings. Um, so there's no silver bullet to idea generation, but that hopefully gives you a sense of um, where we get the ideas from and where where some of the extra research um, comes from, so that we we can do it all all from all from Edinburgh. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And looking at your investment trust, they each have a provision, the China one and the Asia one, to invest in unlisted companies. Um, but it looks like unlisted exposure is very small at the moment. Is this something you expect to increase? Because it seems to be a trend across Bailey Gifford as a company. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think it certainly will do um, within the within the closed ended um, investment vehicles. Um, we only just took over the uh, the China Investment Trust, um, hence um, hence the unlisteds are are, are currently uh, at a very low level. Um, um, but yeah, look, I, I think it's going to increase significantly. Uh, and if I take China for example, look, we've been running you know, a China fund for more than. 14 years in the country. Um, and back then, not being able to invest in a listed didn't really matter. But it does now. You know, a lot of the best companies in the in the country are, are delaying listing uh, for quite a considerable amount of time. You know, we spoke about Ant, you know, that, that came at a $300 billion valuation. Uh, businesses like ByteDance, which owned TikTok, you know, previous funding rounds would suggest they're well, uh, worth well over $100 billion. So companies are delaying listings and to get access to those top companies, we need to be able to get to them um, while they're unlisted companies. 
Um, and I think we're in a pretty good position to do that. Um, you know, in China, for example, we've got a very good reputation. We've got more than 40 billion pounds in the country. We're known for being very long term, uh, engaging shareholders. Uh, and that's crucial because actually you need to be invited to these funding rounds. And it's all about invitations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, Ant, uh, we do own that unlisted in, in other funds at Bailey Gifford. That came through our relationship with Alibaba. Um, Meituan uh, uh, was, was a stock that we got to own unlisted uh, thanks to our relationships with Tencent. Uh, and finally, you know, the Shanghai office, I think that all those on the ground um, presence that will also help build up those relationships. So, yeah, I think unlisted um, are becoming increasingly important. Uh, that add a lot of value for clients and they're likely to become a bigger portion of those um, closed ended funds. Yeah. Can um, Bailey Gifford's funds go into enter unlisted companies together? Like you said, Scottish Mortgage has got a holding in Ant. Why? Why didn't Pacific Horizon join that as an example? Um, so yes, um, they, they they can go in. Um, uh, you know, m- multiple funds can go in uh, in theory. Um, I suppose it comes down to a, to a number of factors. Uh, I suppose the the size of the deal that, that that's uh, that's coming up uh, and individual teams um, and managers. Um, yeah, we all review review the stocks on our on their own merits by ourselves uh, and come up with a decision whether we want to have them in our portfolios um, or, or 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 not. Um, but yes, to answer your question, yeah, we we can have we can have you know multiple funds taking positions in, in in the same unlisted company governance is sort of tricky in asia we've discussed discussed that or it can be um do you think it's harder with unlisted companies because they have less disclosure or, or could it perhaps be easier because you have greater sight of the management and you get closer to the company um yeah and i'll tell you i'd say it's a little bit of the latter uh, in fact um but ultimately you know whether whether companies are are listed or unlisted there there are similar risks involved and it just comes down to you know very good um stock research on an individual company basis um it's very worth highlighting that we also have a, our own independent unlisted team at bailey gifford um, that looks at a, a lot of the the unlisted companies um, we've got our own external um, valuation for those businesses um and i suppose the biggest risk when you're looking at unlisted is it, it, it's that liquidity nature um, you know some funds in the UK have got into, got into trouble by by owning too many unlisteds uh, in the wrong type of vehicle. So, uh, you know, I'd say predominantly, you know, unlisted companies, um, their place is, is in closed-ended funds. Yeah, 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 that's true. We won't name any names. <laughs> and we're, so we've talked a lot about governance, but ESG is something that investors here increasingly want to see better credentials um, for and is something people look for in funds and ESG processes. How do you... Um, assess social and environmental issues when you're investing in China? Sure. I mean, look, because of our, you know, our time horizon, which is five to 10 years, you know, ESG is, 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 is absolutely crucial. Um, so we, we spend a lot of our time um, reviewing ESG um, as any, as part of any of our investment case. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's been improving you know, considerably across the region, you know, across Asia and China over the past sort of over the past decade has been institutionalized. Um, and the quality of the companies has, has really improved. Um, in terms of how we actually about go reviewing it, um, you know, firstly, I'd highlight that we do have our own independent ESG team. You know, it's more than 25 um, specialists um, who will look at the companies that we're investing in um, uh, and, and you know, significantly aid our, our understanding of those companies. Um, for example, we were looking at a business recently called GCL Poly, which we thought was interesting. Um, but it turned out, you know, after our ESG team looked at them, that uh, their competitive advantage was because they weren't really disposing of waste in an environmentally friendly manner. Um, so, you know, you know, instantly got a red flag on the company and didn't invest. Um, 
I think secondly, you know, given our time horizons and our size, it does also mean that we can actively engage with businesses and, and in a successful manner. So there have been times with Chinese companies where they've been doing things that we haven't wanted them to do. Uh, and given you know our holdings of you know five ten percent of those companies, we've been able to get the founders and chairman into our company and and talk to them uh, and persuade them or, or, or force them not to not not to carry out um, those those activities. Um, and increasingly, we're actually being asked to actually help uh, with a number of the companies that we own. You know, companies like uh, Tencent recently have got in touch asking us how they should increase or how they should improve their sustainability reports for their next annual reports. Um, so I, I think it just comes down to you know a lot of detailed research on the businesses, you know, aided by our ESG team, uh, using the fact that we are you know, substantial long-term shareholders to, to influence businesses where we can. And just talking talking about um, the funds this year, what companies have you added to your um to your suite or considerably increased positions in that you find most exciting yeah no it's been a, it's actually been quite a busy year so you know our, our turnover will have picked up um for for the fund over the past eight months and that's really just because of the the sheer number of opportunities that we've been seeing uh, across the region um yeah so firstly i'd say you know during the sort of depths of the crisis there were just a very significant number of quality businesses, particularly in the cyclical space, that were just trading at ridiculously cheap valuations. Um, so, for example, the Nexitir, uh, which is an auto components maker, a Chinese business um, uh, with a very good position in autonomous in in, um, in steering, uh, so way well placed for an era of sort of autonomous driving. This is a company that was trading on three or four times PE multiples, you know, as if it was going to go bankrupt, uh, and you know, there wasn't a chance of that really happening given the uh, given the quality of the company and the order book that it had. Um, so, added to a number of quality cyclicals. Uh, secondly, there have been a lot of IPOs going on, um, much, much more than usual, and these have been a really good companies. Um, so we've got involved in quite a few of those, which is which is unusual. Um, so, for example, uh, KE Holdings in China, uh, which is a um, a bit like the right move of China, uh, if you like. Uh, also, Data Nexus, which is a bit like the Arcado uh, of China. Um, Lufax, uh, the sort of money supermarket of China, if you like, uh, and Burning Rock, uh, which is a, a, a biotech business with exciting um, cancer uh, diagnostics um, uh, in its pipeline. Uh, so a number of uh, a number of IPOs. Uh, and then finally, I'd say just the A-share market in China has been throwing up a lot of interesting ideas, um, particularly helped by our Shanghai office, actually, unearthing a lot of them. And what amazes me there, just the quality of the companies. Uh, I mean, there are just so many really good businesses. Uh, so, for example, we bought uh, Longyi Green Energy, uh, which is the la- world's largest maker of solar uh, solar panels uh, in the world. Great returns, very strong growth. Um, so I think the, the A shares are probably the areas at, the, at this particular moment in time um, where, where we're finding some really good opportunities. Yeah, no, it sounds very exciting. And it's interesting because you talked at the start about the the big companies getting bigger um, and maybe eating up others, but it sounds like concentration risk isn't something that would be on your agenda. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the issue at the moment is actually this: the number of buy ideas. Um, so it's uh, the, the portfolio has actually broadened out, if you like. We've got a, you know, I think uh, around eighty to ninety holdings at the moment, which is uh, which is uh, more than we usually would. Yes, that's a great problem to have. Um, both your investment trusts are on enormous premiums. <laughs> Is that is that something that concerns you, or do you leave that to the market? You have issued some more shares in Pacific Horizon. 
Uh, yes, I know. I mean, the, the Pacific Horizon and, and the China Trust are on significant uh, premiums at the moment. Um, they're, they're probably a little higher um, than we would want, uh, in fact. Um, uh, and I think we, we will be trying to address, you know, how, how those premiums might might uh, might come down to a more reasonable level um, in due course. Um, you know, I think they were up to sort of you know, 10, 15 percent recently, which um, you know, I, I don't think is uh, makes it difficult for people to actually sort of um, you know, get into get into the stock, etc. So I, I think it's it's probably too high at those levels. Yeah. And could we talk briefly about Vietnam? Um, it's not in your emerging companies leading. Sorry, it's not in your emerging leading companies funds, but it's significant exposure in Pacific Horizon. Do you expect your Vietnam exposure to grow? Um I mean, hopefully it will grow, yes, because the uh, the company should perform very well. Uh, that's ultimately why they're in the in, in the fund. Um, but look, yeah, I mean, it'd be about a, a five or six percent position uh, for our for our Asian funds. Um, and the rationale for Vietnam is really that we think it's probably the best structural growth story in all of emerging markets uh, over the coming decades. Um, now, why do I say that? Well, look, Vietnam's got some great attributes. It's a great location, young, cheap workforce, a government that can get things done. And that's all come together to make Vietnam have a successful export manufacturing base. And that's absolutely crucial. You know, most emerging economies never emerge. The only ones that do are the ones that have an export manufacturing base at the beginning of their of their growth story. And Vietnam is really the only country at the moment of significant size um, that is doing that in emerging markets and doing it incredibly successfully. So it's a great foundation for growth. Uh, and you combine that with some really good businesses at cheap valuations, about half that you'd pay for similar growth in the rest of Asia. Uh, and we think it's a, a great long-term place uh, to be invested. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess the, the problem for investors at the moment is it's quite difficult for foreign investors to access Vietnam. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, that is the, 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 the key problem is accessing the market. Uh, and as I said, Shares are a significant discount to other parts of Asia, uh, and in part that's because of uh, the liquidity of the market and those foreign um, the foreign premiums. You have to pay a, a premium on a number of stocks due to their their, their limits, the number of uh, the amount of shares foreigners can own. Um, the good news is that liquidity is not really an issue anymore. You know, this is as a this is a market that is now as liquid as many of other uh, ASEAN markets, and those foreign ownership limits have started to improve. Uh, so, for example, Vina Milk, which was the largest, was uh, uh, one of the largest companies in the in the in the market, they've removed their their foreign caps entirely, uh, and there are moves afoot uh, to help uh, remove those foreign limits uh, further across the market. And um, so, hopefully, hopefully, in the next couple of years, uh, that becomes less of an issue. Okay, and um, sorry, we're running out of time, but one final question, a um, bit of a cheeky question to finish the interview: Which of the funds that you manage do you have the most of your own money in? Oh, interesting question. Um, so I, I haven't been able to invest in the China Trust quite yet. Um, there have been a, a number of corporate actions going on since we took it over, um, uh, which has meant that it's been a bit complicated from a regulatory perspective to put my money in. Um, but I will be adding to that very soon. Uh, so the majority of my money uh, would currently be uh, in the Asia funds, uh, so the OIC and Pacific Horizon. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Roddy. That was really interesting. I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you very much.